I think it's about 3% of the world population are living in countries where fertility is not declining. So the idea that, uh, you know, the population is growing is very old news. Immigrants get old, immigrants stop having kids as well. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the same type of thing. You're just getting in um, essentially a new dependent class because, you know, they're they're not going to, they usually have, you know, maybe more children than the, than the typical, you know, Westerner for maybe one or two generations. Mm -hmm. But it, it the decline's already fairly steep once they get here. You know, are we going to get off the pill? Are we going to, you know, get off of uh, the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, you know, this, it's the toothpaste meets tube type <laughs> situation. Yeah. I don't want people to end up in that position where that realization comes that late and there's maybe not a huge amount you can do about it. And I think that's tragic, actually. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry On Location. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is returning to the show. She is a writer and the host of the subversive podcast, Alice Kashuta, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. And as we said, we're on location in London, which we is why we are fa more fancily dressed than normal. And the set, uh, the set is what the set is. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, welcome to London. Uh, it's great to have you back on. I've been following your uh, your writing and the things you say on social media with great interest. You just spoke at the NatCon conference where we, we where we are as neutral media. Of course, mm -hmm. we are. Um, what are you thinking about right now? What is what is what is sort of piquing your curiosity? What is interesting to you at the moment? Well, I think the the, the main theme of the conference seems to be the um, the fertility crisis. You're the, doing your uh, job. Yeah, I'm doing my my <laughs> part. I've been actually praised for my pregnant lady outfits when I came in here. Thank you. I've, I've worked a lot of them because yeah, you need pregnant lady outfits. <laughs> I've learned. Um, so I think this has been kind of in, in, in the ether. In the, mm. It's also been on my mind. I was thinking about actually speaking on this topic, but I'm kind of glad I didn't because it seems to be very well covered. It definitely would have brought something really redundant to the, to the theme. Um, and it seems to also be very spicy in the UK context because I've been looking at, okay, how, how have people reacted? And, you know, even like the insinuation that, um, you know, uh, mother and father type of combo should be normative in society seems to have sparked like uh, pretty much insanity in, in the UK media. And um, yeah, I mean, the idea that, okay, you know, the, the fertility crisis seems to be tied into um, the idea that, okay, the, the only way to solve this is some form of coercion. And this is what, you know, the fascists at NatCon want you to do. And um, yeah, it's... Make the women have the babies. Yeah, right. exactly. I don't exactly. think that's... But, but before we get into that, a lot of people who are really not familiar with any of these conversations will be thinking, what fertility crisis? We've got a population problem. Population is going to boom. Everyone's going to die of climate change, etc. Yeah. So what is the fertility crisis? I don't think that's the case. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> at least in terms of kind of the, the newer data that we have is that I think it's about 3% of the world population uh, is the are living in countries where fertility is not declining. So the idea that, uh, you know, the population is growing is very old news. The population is falling pretty much everywhere. And it's not falling in the sense of, like, you can't feel it in the water right now. If you go out on the street, plenty of people there, you know, you might see more elderly people slowly, but it's not something that's like an urgent uh, problem. But 
the fact that you know the population pyramids in pretty much every region are, are reversing um, and you have many more older people than younger people is something that can have extreme like like knock-on type domino effect consequences that you know people are just starting to model and starting to realize I mean it's predicted that a country like uh, like um, South Korea who has you know abysmal birth rates they've fallen under one uh, one child per couple, like the TFR is like 0.9 something, um, if they're essentially going to die out. So this is kind of, we're, we're watching the last South Koreans slowly kind of march onto to their graves if this trend continues. And they're not going to die out in like 500 years. This is pretty much in about 100 to 150 years. You know, you'll see the last South Koreans say goodbye to them. And, you know, this is only just like a startling example, but the same trend line applies to pretty much everywhere in the West, with very few exceptions. I mean, um, like consistently over replacement fertility rates you have in places like um, Israel and like the Amish community, um, in Mormon communities in the U.S., but even they are just, just about at replacement and probably going to fall under replacement very soon. So this is a form of, you know, you know essentially what people are trying to do now is to um, identify what exactly causes this. And you know, overall, there's there are many factors that can go into it. There's, you know, environmental factors, you know, even like kind of xenoestrogens in the water, things that might affect, you know, they, we've, we've heard about declining testosterone, uh, you know, fertility issues for, for younger and younger women, the fact that most people who want to have children after a certain age need IVF. There's, there's all sorts of factors going into it, but um, I think the conclusion that a lot of people at NatCon arrived at, and it's one that I have as well, is that the the main factors are essentially cultural. Like we've really, you know, once children became optional, we've really kind of lost the the will to have them in the sense because they are really a burden in a way. And I think people can, you know, they, they can't really model their lives with children, but they know how they feel right now. And they know that, okay, you know, sleepless nights, cost of daycare, you know, I'm renting. I don't want to have that hassle, you know. All all these things. It's it's just not worth it to a lot of people. Is it really cultural though? Because um, look, the housing crisis is a UK very specific problem, but that's part of it. But just more broadly, uh, urbanization means you know Peter Zahan, who we've had on the show and talked yeah. about this. When you live on a farm, kids are free labor. When you live in the city, they're like an expensive pet. Of course, yeah. Right. So it, it's fun, mate. Yeah, it depends what you do. I mean, one can argue that you know urbanization is is something that's kind of tied into culture as well. I mean, the Mm. the incentives for Mm. for urbanization um, are kind of mimetic as well. It's not like okay, it's it's not just people chasing money, but it's you know it's a culture that forms after these kind of after the industrial revolution as well. People kind of gathered in urban centers to you know to to work on the factories, and a certain kind of culture emerged around that. And then mm. a fertility rate dropped to the level of that culture of people you know being together in that environment. So I think what we what we've reached now is the point where kind of a lot of these memes converge, and for the life that the typical individual leads in in these uh, in these cities. It, yeah, it's just, it doesn't make logical sense to, to have children. And yeah. And as well, governments aren't really doing anything to incentivize people either. I mean, the Hungarian government does, to be fair to them. Yeah. But the, certainly the British government, you, you look it's at. It's a tough one, yeah. You, you look at what they're doing, you think, well, they're just exacerbating the problem, aren't they? Yes, in a way they are. But if you if you look at you know places that had incentives for uh, for you know raising the the birth rate, 
it is marginally productive. Even the places who've imposed like you know mm. kind of significant incentives, like Hungary, it's mm, it's it kind of works. I think they've bumped it up by 0.2 or 0.3 uh, after you know massive cultural programs and and all of that. Um, but yeah, the the trend line still you know they're really fighting an uphill battle. It's it's it seems to be very hard to lift. I think the only country who's actually gotten it back from below replacement to above replacement is Georgia, because they've been. Um, I think the local patriarch, people are very religious in Georgia, um, baptizes every you know, third or fourth child that a family has. So, like big families are incentivized to, you know, get to the special ceremony to, to yeah, to meet the patriarch and have their child baptized by him. So, yeah, I think you know, a strange, exotic type of you know incentive that I don't necessarily know would work here. I don't mm. know if the Archbishop of Canterbury <laughs> would, you know, pump people up to to have lots of kids, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the housing crisis, I think, is really an important thing as well. But if I if I think back at, you know, all of the the squalor and, and struggle that my ancestors went through and just the, the material conditions that they had children in, it, you know, I don't think the fact that they rented and didn't own was was a big problem for them or, you know, the, the cost. They, they had different social technologies around yeah. them as well. Like they had family, they had support networks and all of that. But it was also culturally the thing that you did, mm-hmm. um, and it was not really optional in the sense that you would, you know, if you didn't do this, you were probably going to be stigmatized or you would feel bad about yourself if you, you know, you were a spinster or you didn't, you know, participate in um, in growing the clan and, and all the traditions that tied into that. And when, you know, you had the cultural, uh, the not the cultural revolution, the industrial revolution and all the things that kind of uh, came with it. You know, the, the family just didn't work the same way. You know, people moved a, away for work. They um, they preferred to live alone because, you know, family is wonderful, but it's also kind of a hassle. And if you, if you can help it, you'd probably move away from your in-laws. And most people did. So it's also the abundance that, that the Industrial Revolution and all the technologies coming with it created that um, allowed us to, to atomize ourselves because... You know, like in economics, it is a it is a revealed preference. People like to you know mind their own business. You know, it's like we were talking before this. You know, community is something beautiful, but it's for when other people do it, it's much nicer. You know, other people really need community. I'm I'm, I'm kind of a loner myself. <laughs> <laughs> but we're also ignoring the elephant in the room, which is the pill. Yeah, yeah. I think the the pill is a is a is a major factor in there. Um, the thing is, birth rates were falling before the pill as well. So it's kind of a, a trend that was already in motion, and the pill was definitely not a decelerant. It really kind of um, um, yeah, helped to, to stoke the fires of, of a trend that was already in motion. So it's not the pill, or the pill may have contributed, let's say. Yeah. So w- when we talk about the cultural developments that are a product of urbanization, whatever, so what's going on, Alex? Because there's part of me that thinks that uh, th- when we delve into this issue, uh, we're going to find a lot of things we don't like pretty quickly in terms of, you know, the correlation between prosperity and the number of children people have. Uh, you know, do we need to be poorer so that we start reproducing? Is it about women's liberation? Have we liberated women too far? Like that would be a question some people ask. I'm not saying I'm asking it, but people will will start to ask all of these questions. You talk to, I've been talking to a lot of people at the conference about it, like Louise Perry, she's like, it's all about prosperity. You talk to Eric Kaufman, he'll say, well, it's about religion, you know, and he's not religious, but religious communities reproduce and non-religious basically don't. Like, w- where do you see the, the crucial piece of this? 
Yeah, I think it's, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's hard to um, kind of delineate which particular ingredient in this because mm. these are all kind of factors that accentuate each other. And uh, it's hard to say what, you know, what the first domino was when, you know, you're, you're like 100 dominoes down the line. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, in a way, the education of women was, was a big thing. You know, it kind of um, freed women from marriages that were... Um, not necessarily of convenience, but in the sense that, you know, you really were dependent in many ways for men, for protection and for financial support, which, you know, not saying anything about the quality of those marriages. A lot of marriages, you know, are arranged or, or you know, maybe coerced a little bit in the beginning and people end up having a really good marriage. Um, so not saying that that's a bad thing, but uh, it's, uh, you know, the fact that people did have a lot more options, like in the case of having children as well, I think led to a uh, decline in, in marriage rates and then, you know, and the revealed preference of not having to deal with each other's uh, bullshit. And so the inevitable question is, if we are to address this problem, yeah, what do we do? Yeah, you know, it's like kind of a, a Pandora's box type situation. Uh, putting the the toothpaste pack in the, in the yeah. tube. Um, it's it's a tough one. I mean, I feel like. Obviously, what I'm part of and what I'm trying to do is kind of more of a you know incentivizing people culturally to, um, you know, adopt this meme of pronatalism uh, because, I mean, I, I can be only one, a testimonial of one. It's been really a, a miraculous thing for my life. And uh, I know for my husband as well. I mean, yeah, I don't want to speak for him, but yeah, I can because, you know, he's very happy <laughs> being a dad. Um, and, yeah, you know, the, the people that I know around me are also, you know, completely enamored by their children. Um there's also, you know, the, the downside is of, of building this up too much because obviously there are downsides. You know, I think there's also kind of a, a very trad movement now that it's like, oh, you know, this is this is going to solve all your psychoses, all your problems are gonna are gonna be solved by by having children. Uh, it's it's all upside. Obviously, it's not. I mean, you know, people have the instinct that this is going to derail their lives, and they're very, very right. It's going to completely restructure the way you relate to yourself, to your partner, to your life, to what your priorities are. But for most people, this is a good thing. <laughs> I really think so because um, a, a lot of the problems that people have psychologically with, with kind of the burden of modernity is this aimlessness of, okay, yes. what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? You know, there's no guardrails. It's all about you self-creating, you know, building this unique, uh, you know, snowflake type thing that uh, that only you represent, you know, finding your authenticity, going to whatever silent retreats and meditating on, on what it is to be alive and stuff like that. And I've personally found by doing this stuff, it's, it feels like it's kind of an eternal circle. You're kind of always back to square one and it's like, you know, whenever you think you've had this major epiphany that you've kind of fought yourself out of your thinking process, you're back in, in the shit. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think part of the problem as well is that we are accustomed to living a life where our own pleasure is the main thing? Yeah, I think that's that is part of the problem. Um, it's 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 a hard problem to solve because that's kind of the most uh, immediate thing that you want to do. Because you know, in a way, we're at, at base, we're all animals, and you know, you want to scratch an itch and you know, eat the eat the candy and do all that stuff. Plus, there are so many ways to scratch so many itches that you didn't even know you had, and probably didn't have until you know yesterday when you saw, hmm, people are having this itch online. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe I should scratch it. So um, I think that's a uh, you know. It's something that people underestimate, like the mimetic power of a lot of the stuff that comes comes in from the internet. I mean, you know, the the kind of more benign ways that you know some company convinces you to buy shoes off of the internet. 
the more kind of vicious way is that, you know, your 14-year-old's convinced to chop off her breasts because she saw I don't know, 500 TikTok videos of people saying, this is really satisfying, do it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a, a very strange new world. And it is, you know, kind of all about this, because we don't have a, a structure to fit into, to say, okay, how, what, is, what is life? You know, life is you wake up, you go feed the animals, you have this, 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 this responsibility, this fills up your entire day. Um, and then you go to bed and you, you know, you say your prayer and you, you know, you report to, to this authority and you're kind of inbuilt into the system. And everyone else believes the same thing because obviously this is what you believe. Um, I think, you know, since time immemorial, we had something like that. Now we don't have anything like that. And people are told, okay, it's time for you to, to make up on the fly, whatever you think that thing is, you know? And I don't think, most people, probably very few people are equipped to actually do that, you know, to create their own authenticity from scratch. And then they fall prey to a lot of this stuff that's just like out there in the ether. And a lot of the stuff is really predatory, like, you know, whatever, slot machine gambling now. It's like, you know, slot machines used to be really bad in like even the 80s. But nowadays they have essentially the same logic inbuilt like Candy Crush. And you have people just like sitting in front of the slot machines, you know, peeing on themselves after three days and, you know, like dying of dehydration because this stuff is just so powerful. Um, and we're really not equipped to deal with it. And yeah, like I said, not just the slot machines, like everything's like that now. And, you know, the, the free market idea is that, you know, there is a need, the market's feeling a need. These people have a need to, you know, die of dehydration in front of a slot machine because they keep doing it. They keep pulling the lever. Free will, they've, they're, they're consenting to do it. So, um, yeah, I think... A lot of our environment is, is is set up like that, and you know maybe this trad stuff and you know kind of back to the land, all this stuff is kind of a bit of a backlash against that. You know I don't necessarily think it's all you know super wise, and I think a lot of people you know I, I hear stories of you know like nineteen and twenty year olds now getting married just and in, in, in being afraid of all this stuff that we're talking about the the predation that they see around them, and then they get really kind of disillusioned by the fact that you know marrying some random 19-year-old who thinks that, you know, the, the West has fallen off the internet is, uh, <laughs> is not, like, an idyllic way of, of living and it's not really, like, you know, in the pictures of you walking through a wheat field with your babies and stuff. So, yeah, we're definitely at a, a sort of kind of metaphysical crossroads and how we relate to ourselves and in the, in, in the West in general. And people feel like they've, they've lost a lot, um, but we're still kind of fumbling in the dark about what to do, what to do about it. And one of the interesting things that has risen with this whole uh, natalism conversation is the rise of surrogacy. Now you look at it on the surface, you go, okay, this is, you know, this is good. You know, people who can't have kids can have kids. What's, what's wrong with that? And then you look into it and you go, oh, this is dark. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a strange thing because obviously the kind of the, the more kind of napkin presentation of the case for surrogacy is is really nice you know you have you know women who maybe don't are, are not of you know great means you know but are are willing to do it for kind of generously to 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 help someone who maybe is infertile and they really want their own child and this is the only way they can have it it's really you know it, it kind of pulls on the heartstrings especially if you're someone who knows you know are infertile yourself or, or you know it's 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 tough out there like i said you know a lot of people are having trouble with this um and it feels like oh you know you you scratch my back i scratch yours type of situation um but i think the 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 case for it um or against it in a way is kind of a case of like like virtue ethics it's like if we allow this 
type of um, activity to to start. And if we allow this little edge case where you know it's obviously virtuous and nice, um, the thing is not going to stay there. You know, we have we have you know slippery slopes are all around us, and we've been slipping on so many. Uh, and at, at this point, where I think surrogacy, especially commercial surrogacy and cross-border commercial surrogacy is already a little bit of a, of a strange um, beast because, you know, especially now with the war in Ukraine, you know, this is kind of a lot of the unco- uncovered was essentially that a lot of people who were evacuating were these kind of like big brother style houses of women who, you know, were living kind of in a, in a cluster home, I don't know, pregnant with some Westerners baby and they were kind of keep being kept in sort of... Um, I don't know, observation, so that the, the the moms and dads or whoever was ordering the baby from abroad was, uh, yeah, was uh, kept in check of, of how the ladies were doing and, and stuff like that. So I don't know, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, you could see this, we're still at the beginning of this, and this is already kind of, you know, it, it feels a little bit predatory, and it feels a bit predatory to interrupt and just completely, like, commercially sever the bond between mom and baby. I mean, I've I've had a baby. I'm going to have one again very soon, and it's uh, the idea that you know in the hospital. Even though if if I signed the contract before, obviously you know I consented to this previously without knowing how I'd feel when the baby arrived. Um, I would just have to you know give the baby you know just hand it over and say sayonara. I'm I'm going to go home now. Um, so yeah, there's also a lot of you know physical cost involved. Um, yeah, it's it's you know recovering from pregnancy is not always easy. Uh, there are risks of you know risks that are really hard to calculate in advance as well in terms of the impact on your health. You know, some women you know end up having like stress fractures, uter- uterine ruptures, all sorts of you know things that just happen in the course of not being pregnant um, might lead to infertility for themselves afterwards. So, yeah, I mean. Obviously, if someone's more of a libertarian bent, they say, okay, you know, put this in a disclaimer, put it in the contract, obviously, let them know that this, you know, side effects might include this, this, and this. <laughs> but uh, I think when it comes to something so profound as the, the bond between a child and, and mother, um, you know, I don't think your body knows that, oh, this is someone else's egg and this is some, you know, third party sperm and, you know, this is it's a strange, it's a different situation. But yeah, it, it just feels like, you know, one of those slopes that, you know, it's you can tell when you reach the precipice that it's like this, this is the direction it's going into. And we're just about there and we're, we're taking the first step down the slope. And it's, you know, the the darkness at the bottom is essentially, you know, people ordering babies for anything. Mm. Yeah. Well, it comes back to the point you were making about the market. It's like, what is the commodity that's being traded in that exchange? Uh, and <laughs> And and it starts to get a little bit uh, creepy very quickly. And as Francis says, once you look into it, then it sort of starts to make sense a little bit. But I want to come back to what what can be done about it, because um, I was chatting to a bunch of uh, young women at the conference. Uh, and I actually did something I don't usually do, which I just stood back and listened for mm-hmm. a long time. Uh, and there's a kind of different set of perspectives on this, because there are some... Uh, some people who go, well, you know, we got to put the message out there and whatever. And there are other people who I think quite rightly say, well, look, like a guy on stage telling me a bunch of statistics about when I'm supposed to get pregnant by isn't really going to persuade me to do it. And I did, you know, since I've had my son a year ago, I've been putting out like wholesome thirst traps on the internet <laughs> about like, is this is how fun it is. This is how much I'm enjoying. Here's a cute photo, whatever, even though I'm going to stop doing that. 
Um, what is the way uh, to to just let? It's not about persuading people into doing stuff. It's just like letting them know that that option that we talked about has all these benefits that you might not see because you're living in you know in a big city. You may none of your friends have kids. You know, the one of them was saying, "I didn't hold my first baby until I was thirty, which to me and probably to you, being Eastern European, you're like, "What?" You know, no, well, that was the case for me as well. Oh, was it? <laughs> yeah, I didn't really? have siblings or I was like totally surrounded by babies my whole <laughs> you know, time. No, that's pretty normal in Eastern Europe yeah. because mm. I'm just a bit of a freak. So, yeah. don't worry. <laughs> so, so w- what do you think is some of the what what is the best way to communicate about this issue? In your yeah, opinion, I think there's kind of a, a, a two pronged thing. I really I agree that the you know the young ladies won't necessarily be convinced by you know a graph here. Look at the graph; <laughs> it's, it's real bad if you don't pop them out tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think that's, that's good. And I, I do think kind of your approach of thirst trapping is probably more, um, more suitable to, to, to how to do it. Um, I think people seeing high status people, people that they look up to, people that they want to emulate doing these things and presenting it, like I said, in, in a bit of a realistic manner, because, you know, you can also have the, the overshot where it's just all just wheat fields and, you know, women surrounded by by seven babies, you know, real thin with their, you know, wonderful blonde hair, you know, flowing in the wind. That happens, but it's, it's, it's rarely the case. It's usually a bit more hectic if you have seven babies, you know, it's they're not all chill all the time and all this type of stuff. So, yeah, I mean... It's that's kind right, of. I'll the, stop posting his photos and I'll just stop stop posting his nappies. Every, yeah. <laughs> like the, the, the kitchen table after he's done throwing stuff everywhere. Yeah, just I think if you put like five adorable thirst traps of wonderful things, just throw a dirty nappy in there occasionally, just to done. remind people that you know, there's a yeah. bit of a bit of a downside in there as yeah. well. And the reason I, I feel really strongly about this is I don't know if I've told this in, in, on on in public before, but. Uh, I did this uh, discussion at Unheard uh, a few months back, and Freddie, who uh, Freddie says, who hosts it, he said to me, um, he said, "There's something different about you since you became a father. There's something different." And I went, "Well, yeah, the, the future is not an abstraction anymore. Mm-hmm. It has a face and it has a name, uh, which I, I hadn't thought about before. But that's what came to me in the moment." And then as we were standing outside, I'd uh, broken all my post-father uh, promises and bummed a cigarette off Freddie and I was, him and I were standing mm. there smoking. And this couple walked out of the club and uh, the, the woman came over to me and she was like, oh, I'm so glad you said that. You know, you really changed the way I think about, it. you know, I'm really, blah, blah, blah. And, and she was like, you could tell she was really inspired. Mm-hmm. And she was like, we're going to have children now. You know, I was like, oh, right now, we'll go for it. But <laughs> but then I we were talking a little bit more, and I, and I, I went, how old are you? And she went, I'm 43. I mean, so it could still happen. <laughs> it could. It could. But probably not. Yeah. And I, I felt that that was a kind of sign to me that I shouldn't keep quiet about it. Because I don't want people to end up in that position where that realization comes that late and there's maybe not a huge amount you can do about it. And I think that's tragic, actually. And I think a whole slew of people from our generation, we're both 40. If you're a woman our age and you you haven't, you know, you're you're in trouble, right? So this is a really serious issue, not just like for the survival of South Korea, but like, for people's sense of fulfillment and well-being and happiness and 
all of that. And increasingly, I meet and hear from a lot of people who are in that position. So it's a really important issue. But as we talked about, the top down, do this, this is what all of that isn't going to work. So other than you and I thirst trapping people online, what else can, can be done culturally about this if it's a cultural issue? Yeah, I think, you know, the kind of the, the, the policy wonk type stuff, I think, should be done, not necessarily because each individual policy does something, but because it signals that this is a kind of a priority of the state. Um, and I think it should be because, you know, very few things are uh, are as serious and as imminent. I think the problem that we have with the kind of democratic politics is that people think in like four or five year cycles. Uh, and it's like, okay, what, what, what's what's burning now? And these things, like this is like generational, multi-generational issues. And it's very hard to uh, bake in kind of a long-term view because, it, you know, what's what's the return going to be on whatever, you know, politicians, uh, yeah, priorities for the next five years. So I think that's a challenge. But um, given the fact that, you know, a lot of people really um, are, are having this problem and the fact that this is like the main theme of this conference is not just because it's filled with, you know, weird like Westminster wonks because it isn't. It's filled with a lot of people who maybe have gone through, um, you know, trying to have children or have, have got into some, some issues with it. You know, we're talking about housing, we're talking about all this stuff, and they're trying to solve these issues. And I think this is uh, symptomatic of, of a change in the culture as well. I mean, this, mm. you didn't hear about this five years ago, no. though. It was already kind of a problem if you, in the South Korea sense, it was already kind of a, an issue. But now it's an issue as well because... I feel many people from the millennial generation or so are starting to feel the burn of, of this as well. Like they, they're seeing people in their cohort either um, trying to have children, not managing to have children, or you know having pretty kind of depressing lives. You know, trying to you know keep going to the clubs with their you know wrinkly whatever, and <laughs> you know it's not it's just not yeah it's not a satisfying thing. So um, I think it's it might have a chance to just be be picked up and you know through. A myriad of thirst traps uh, from from influential people such as yourselves. Uh, I think uh, it's going to, yeah, you know, Be because <laughs> also as well, it leads to the problem of mass immigration, where we have a labour shortage in this country, and the only way to fill it is to get people from overseas, and that creates its all its own problems. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's this is again the five year cycle. It's like, yeah, for five for the next five years, this is an extremely good. At, you know, you're going to solve patch the problem, but immigrants get old. Immigrants stop having kids as well. Um, you know, it's 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 the same type of thing. You're just getting in um, essentially a new dependent class because you know they're they're not going. They, they usually have you know maybe more children than the than the typical you know Westerner for maybe one or two generations, mm -hmm. but it, it the decline's already fairly steep once they get here because of urbanization, because of the incentives of living in the space, because of you know the fact that um, obviously their their children will be edu educated. They want them to to come here to be educated. The the girls will be educated. They they have other aspirations for their lives, and then. You know, even if they're in a bit more of a traditional context, uh, you know, the memes of modernity are, are flooding in. The pill, you know, maybe maybe they didn't have the pill back in Afghanistan and definitely have it here. Um, yeah, and uh, and what is high status in the culture is not, you know, being the trad wife or whatever, having lots of kids. It is, I don't know, participating in all the self-creating, cool authenticity <laughs> stuff that we discussed before. Um, so, yeah, I think that's... But it also leads to problems within a nation because the, the lack of cohesiveness within the nation, you know, people from different cultures mean that it's 
it's not as homogenous as it once was. That leads to problems, leads to problems of national identity. So, of course, yeah. you know, there's there's a flip side to mass immigration as well. Oh, of course. <laughs> Fully. <laughs> I don't think yeah, you need no, to convince no, anyone. No, no, definitely. Um, it, there, there are many, many issues with mass immigration. Um, I mean, the, like I said, for fertility, I would say, yes, it's kind of a, a bit of a patch in the short term. Uh, but in terms of, of kind of what it does to, to, to national cohesion, and this is kind of like very vague terminology. That's what people attack it like, oh, what does cohesion even mean? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if, if you go to Bradford, you see what cohesion means. You know, if you, if you go to places where cohesion's broken down, you know, you, you can, I know it when I see it type, type things, you know. Um, a, a lot of kind of um, modern politics is about kind of the, the rule of experts, you know, bring bring your own spreadsheets, bring your own graphs and type of stuff. And I feel like a lot of the problems that you have with mass immigration is just, um, you know, kind of the, sal- the silent disenfranchisement of people who used to live here, you know. It's like this whole, like, white flight type discussion, people just kind of, you know, slowly moving out. It's hard sometimes to quantify or people don't really want to quantify it because it's not a not a favorable statistic to, to the incentive structure that the people in politics want to build. Um, so it just, you know, you just wake up one day and like, you know, Bradford is majority, I don't know exactly, Bangladesh, Pakistani, something like that. Um, and, you know, people might say, oh, it's just the way the cookie crumbles is fine, whatever, you know, but it's not just that, you know, you obviously have um, the grooming gang crisis, I mean, scandal, you know, whatever, just like this pervasive uh, insanity that happened with the um, majority Pakistani uh, grooming gangs. Um, and also, because there is kind of a, a silencing on this and, you know, people don't really want to rock the boat, they don't want to be anti-immigration and things like that, these things tend to escalate to a point where, you know, it's, 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 really, it's really unsustainable. Um, and, yeah, this stuff doesn't make it into the, into the GDP calculation. It just, you know, overall GDP is growing, you know. It doesn't matter what Bradford looks like. It doesn't matter if, you know, you know the, that, you know, the girls are tortured in Telford or something like that. GDP line goes up. That's what, you know, most of the policy wonks care about. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what's going to flow into the statistics. That's what the experts are going to care about. Um, but, yeah, and I think, like, that's a lot of the stuff that's kind of low status and so right-wing politics and things like that um, is based on, you know, things that are nakedly visible to the eye that are, you know, obviously painful for people experiencing them, um, but that somehow don't make it into the statistics, you know? It's one of the things I wanted to ask you about because you're one of the people that I see talking about status a lot, high status, low status. Um, and I think Ed West talks about this quite a bit as well. It's, uh, it's a very interesting way of looking at why some ideas are popular and, and others not. Because I think it's tempting, particularly if you're like us, you care about truth. You, it's sort of tempting to think, well, if something's right, then other people are going to... Uh, but... That's kind of not really the way we think about these things, is it? Yeah, I think status is a is a really important variable that yeah a lot of people overlook because um, you know yeah p- people tend to think that okay we're the world operates on on, on truth claims okay if something's more um, science based if something's more uh, kind of knowledge based than than something else it will somehow for some mechanism win out in the end uh, but in reality kind of the way um, power works and the way uh, ideas become influential is who exactly holds these ideas, you know, how do they propagate the fact that they hold them, um, who is influenced by them, and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, we, we hear that, you know, the argument from authority is a, is a fallacy, 
but it's pretty much how how arguments work, you know. Mm. And even even you, like for example, if you want to inform yourself about whatever kind of you know strange topic that you don't know much about, you know, you go to X expert and see, okay, what is the consensus in the field? Maybe you listen to one or two speakers or something, uh, and then you from authority <laughs> take that guy's word for for it. Uh, and now because we have so many domains, like pretty much every domain of life is, is a domain of expertise. And that's kind of what we believe in. Um, you know, the argument from authority is pretty much what, what, we, what we all believe. And then um, status in every field is how kind of that authority is conveyed. Okay. Mm. And so you have that in... Um, Pandemic was a good example of this. Uh, yeah. And actually, whichever side of the argument you come down on... Now, and this is what I was going to ask you about, because now with I, I feel that so many of the issues that we're talking about are a product of social media, uh, because social media gives status to ideas that aren't true, but sound good, and punishes ideas that are true, but don't sound good, I think, in a, in a way that even discussion in the mainstream media doesn't even reach that level. Like, the level of derangement on, on many things yeah. on social media is amplified by the fact that it really rewards things that sound nice and therefore high status versus things that don't. Um, do you think that's a big part of it? The, the social media entering into the fray and that's one of the reasons that there's such a separation now as well? Yeah, I think social media kind of exacerbates what is already present in, in human right. nature. Yeah, I think if you if you were in like a little band of people in your village, you had kind of the same instincts of, okay, I'm going to trust a high status guy and I'm going to think this guy's a, a loser because he's whatever, since whatever loser signals and I'm not going to believe his religion, I'm going to believe mm -hmm. this guy's religion. Um, and that's kind of what you have on social media. I mean, who, whoever you follow, they're the, they're the influencers and you're going to kind of side with them, even if they make some crazy statements. Because an interesting thing that I've noticed about even like political social media is that the clustering of positions is sometimes not very coherent. Like, you know, you had, for example, with COVID at the beginning, the most intensely locked down, pro-lockdown, pro-masking, pro-people, were people on the fringe right, because they were kind of early on this. They There's a lot of them in Asia for some reason. And they, um, they were really kind of, uh, you know, on the barricades and learning about this and telling people where to get their masks and stuff. And then uh, it kind of flipped when it became a little bit more mainstream. People, you know, at first it was all about hugging your friends in Chinatown and stuff like <laughs> that in the mainstream. And then it flipped. It was all, you know, this is the end of the world. We need to, we need to lock down. Um, and it, you could see this kind of the, the status hierarchies like solidifying in real time because, you know, it wasn't clear exactly what the position was at first, but then it was clear, okay, you know, my people believe this. We believe, you know, vaccines are holy, we need the masks, we need the lockdowns, it's all good. If you're against this, you're a part of this other tribe. And obviously, there's also an incentive for the other tribe to say, oh, really? Well, then, yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes, I am the anti-masking people. I am anti-vaccine people. And it does lead to, like, definitely more derangement in terms of, like, people holding on to positions really strongly than you'd have in, you know, the, the village with the loser guy and the, the high-status chat telling you what religion to follow. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely a lot of kind of mechanics built into the internet that, um, like the slot machines, we're not used to, like social escalations that we're not used to dealing with in, in real life. It's, we're not built for that that scale of, I don't know, exacerbation of ideas. And is the answer to get off the internet? Just sorry. Yeah, sorry, go, go. Is, is, is that the only answer? Because I don't think we are going to get off the internet. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough one. Like, what, to be honest, with all these technologies, like, you know, are we going to get off the pill? Are we going to, you know, get off of uh, the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, you know, this it's the toothpaste meets tube type situation <laughs> yeah. uh, because we need it. I mean, you know, we, we both make our living off 
broadcasting on the internet, you know, I want to read the comments, see what people are talking about, I want to see who the guests are. I'm kind of stuck, stuck in it in a way. And I feel like just personally, I'm just now I'm trying to kind of moderate my use of it, you know, trying to be, yeah, I don't know, try to be very paternalistic with myself and how I use it because no one else is going to be. But I can see how, you know, how how much of a downward spiral it can be for other people who, you know, for some reason or another, maybe don't have, you know, good self-control. Not that I have extremely good self-control, but, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, doing my best to do this. Um, but yeah, it's you know, it's another thing that that is and can be predatory if it's not put to good use. Um, and I think this is kind of a dynamic that you see a lot nowadays in terms of you know the the, the space we're in with all these technologies and all the stuff that's really changed in the last few hundred years is really good and gives like insane returns to a very small percent of people. You see this everywhere from dating markets, from the economy. You know, there are a few people who are very well placed in terms of being like very high IQ, high conscientiousness, low neuroticism type people who can just take this stuff and just like plug into it like robotically and just, you know, make the most money, you know, get the best partner, things like that. And then that works out for them. But because it is such a, there, there's so many wild cards here for the other people, this is essentially like a predatory, the fact that this is all just like completely you know, very like, you know, build your own adventure, non-paternalistic, we don't judge type stuff. Uh, but it is really, yeah, it's it's quite aggressive for the for the people who are just not equipped to to deal with it. So, you know, we've we've kind of built our society around the idea that, you know, freedom is perfect. It's it's really good. But I think there are gradations of of how much any individual person can consent to this stuff, both in the sense that the stuff is getting more um, predatory by the year, like every, every year, the stuff, you know, with A-B testing, like everything's more refined. Um, and I feel like a lot of people who are at the top, you know, tend to be very libertarian about this. It's all fine. But I feel like there's, um, it's coming for you. Like you're not, you know, you might say you're going to plug into the AI and become like a Superman, but you're not a Superman yet. You know, you've, even with your high IQ type stuff, um, it, it'll get you like some one of these traps will get you eventually. And, um, you know, it's, you know, for now, it's OK that it's just kind of like consuming the plebs and whatever. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's coming. It's coming to a, to a theater near you. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think what people fail to realize with social media is that it is dementing. And that yeah, we like to think that we're immune. I certainly did until... You know, you, one day you end up losing your head and just get, getting drawn into an argument. And before you know it, you're at seven, it was seven o'clock in the morning. You're looking out and it's the sun is setting and you've spent however long, you know, saying things that you deeply regret. Yes, <laughs> we've all been there, haven't yeah. we? <laughs> yes, I mean, that's one of my rules on the internet is to not engage in, in, in beefs. And yeah. one of my other rules that I don't follow pretty much is to not read comments, but I do read comments in the mm. end. And then people tell me like, oh, you know, you're, you're really fat. And I'm like, well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things uh, moving on, but still focusing on the internet that I find really interesting is the left-right paradigm, where people used to say, I'm left, I'm right. Well, because everything has become niche due to the internet, what you see is political movements becoming fractured and fragmented. Mm. And it, at first it happened with the left, where I originally was on the left, and then I saw wokeism, and, and we all know what happened with that. But now I'm seeing on the right, and the fractures start to appear on the right. So, so what do you think of that, what's happening on the right, and where do you place yourself? 
Yeah, it's it's a tough one. I mean, if you asked me that maybe a year or two ago, I'd probably have like a, you know, a name for the place where I place myself. Mm. But now I'm not so sure just because I've, I'm kind of in the, the more kind of dissident right, right, right wing space. Mm. And I kind of know the different factions now. And it does feel like it's the fracturing is more of a product of, of what's going on with the medium itself, like with the Internet itself and the incentives that are set by the platforms. So obviously, you know, what What are these movements? They all are, they have a few key influencers, some of them, and they kind of set policy for the movements. Um, and to grow your specific circle, you kind of have to cleave off audience from the other circles. And then you enter into these beefs for whatever point of, of doctrine, you know. There's beef around, you know, should we be a wife guy or is, you know, women loving loving women and having a, a, a peaceful home with them gay, you know, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> what, what a conversation. <laughs> this is this is an important conversation <laughs> on the right. Obviously, there's a split between um, religious and atheist right-wingers mm-hmm. uh, or people who are, like, maybe more into, like, a pagan vibes and things like that. Um, that's a, a big fault line. So, you know, that that's kind of, you know, and obviously the the, um, influencers in these uh, in these spaces, especially because now there's more attention to these spaces because there really is a lot of you know generative, interesting stuff happening there. That's why I'm in this space. Um, they're getting a lot of attention. You know, there's a bit of money actually. Mm-hmm. People are getting uh, whatever signups and whatever Substack money. Um, and yeah, there's there's more incentive to to present yourself as you know the the actual heir of the right wing in general, and this is the program, and my 10-point program is much more coherent than your 10-point program. And yeah, people fighting about, over immigration, like there's a, the, the major fault line now is uh, between people who are um, kind of Christian and they essentially are looking forward to, you know, a right wing with kind of a Christian core as kind of the, the morality of whatever proposed state that they'd like to live in. Um, and people who say, oh, no, no, Christianity essentially just means, you know, open borders because you just let in anyone in the world who's Christian. And that obviously has a lot of, you know, bad side effects in the sense that we're just pretty much a square one and we have the same social ills that we have now, but everyone's nominally Christian. So, Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the main divide here. And I, I, there is something to these arguments. Obviously, they need to be, to be uh, discussed. But the fact that they end up, you know, in the sense that, okay, we need to purge you. You know, <laughs> you need to, we need to cleave you off and we need to, whoever is with me has to stay on this side of the fence and whoever is not with me needs to leave. It's, um, yeah, it's definitely a, a it's a, it's a, interesting and lively time to be in, in, in right-wing politics on the internet. Um, but yeah, it's still, it's still, I think, one of the most interesting places to, to hang out. Um, and you identify as being, to quote your words, a dissident right. Uh, what, yeah. what, what does that actually mean? What, what do you it's believe? It's a, a, a moniker for the whole, the whole space. I mean, what do I believe? I mean, I've, you know, I'd, I don't think I've, I'd say I have like a you know, political program to implement tomorrow, but I'm definitely... <laughs> I'm more of a kind of a suspicious of, of um, mainstream right politics. I mean, I share the same values. I mean, I think we should have a society that has kind of a relatively core normative ideas of, of, of how to live life. You know, the, the two family type, situ- uh, two parent family type situation and that uh, policy should be geared towards supporting that. And, you know, we should be having a kind of a long term consideration of what our societies will look like, which brings in the kind of the birth rates conversation and all of this stuff. Um, I think religion should have a, a, a kind of a revered position in society, though, you know, my personal relationship with religion is a little bit tortured, and uh, I know. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, I'm kind of right-wing in the sense of, yes, my values align with pretty much 
I would say, most right-wing people who would consider themselves right-wing. What the dissident right brings to the table is kind of a, a, a more granular critique of power. Like, a lot of people in the dissident right wouldn't say that, you know, okay, we just need to win the next election. Because I think the, the main epiphany that they've had is post-Trump, post-Brexit, is that things just don't work that way. You know, it's not like you win an election and you have power. And your, your side has power and now you do your, your side's things. Um, we discovered that, you know, there is a whole substructure, kind of managerial substructure. You call it the blob, call it the cathedral, call it whatever you'd like. Um, that um, essentially has a, has a mind of its own, and it is fueled by status. It's fueled by what the elite, the actual elite who is in power, not the figurehead guy who you voted in or out, um, and uh, what, what they believe and what, what, the, what fuels them and what interests them. And for now, the major um, kind of ideology behind the elite is some form of wokeness. You know, the, the most interesting and powerful people in the world believe some form of wokeness, uh, either because they are true believers, which I think most of them are, or because it is useful to them, because it has you know, some useful characteristics for, uh, for the upper class, because they can essentially have kind of this very profound moral vision where they can not only feel good about themselves for you know, flagellating themselves because, you know, whatever, white guilt and all this type of stuff, uh, they can hate the people that they usually hate, which is kind of the middle and lower middle class, and then they can also kind of virtuously give handouts to their client classes, which are the lower classes, you know, people, immigrants, you know, all the, the, the woke coalition, the woke pyramid that you want to. Uh, obviously, they don't mingle with these people, but they are their client class and they can make promises to them. And they can gang up on the middle, obviously, because uh, the middle is always the contender for the top spot. You know, you're not worried about, you know, the people in Newham, you know, you're worried about the people in Cornwall. You know, and you don't want those to, to come and, and get you. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's... So, Alex, that being the case, if winning elections doesn't solve things, what is the dissident's right version of the solution? There are many, <laughs> there are many solutions. That's always kind of where the, where the thing breaks down a little bit because um, the solutions are typically a more, a more centralized form of... Uh, of Organizing society. I mean, oh, there's a relief. Yeah. <laughs> authoritarianism, great. I mean, you know, you call authoritarianism, but uh, you know, this, you know, democracy is, you know, is something that's is quite recent in, in human history. I mean, we've mm -hmm. had some form of of monarchy pretty much since time immemorial. There's always kind of, um, you know, that, that's kind of the hierarchy. You know, you have middle management, upper management, at the, at the top there's a CEO in any organization that's functional, you know, except for the state, where apparently we're all kind of co-partners co and we're all CEOs in, in our own right, but in, in reality that's not really how it, how it works. So I think that the main critique isn't that, um, you know, a, a democracy on paper is, is bad, is that democracy in reality is essentially a, a shadow oligarchy. It's like, it's not that, um, you know, it wouldn't be good for it to be this way where, you know, we have these really relevant people who actually have power in government that we can all vote for in, in an informed way. And, you know, this, is, this all sounds great. I, I, I buy into it. But witnessing the process of politics, how the sausage is made in reality, what you have is essentially um, a whole cast of people who you cannot see, who are unaccountable, who are distributed within this whole kind of hydra of managerialism, and, you know, like with COVID, like who exactly, you know, has been held to account for the fact that 
most probably this this stuff escaped the lab. Most probably, a lot of the policies were were completely misguided. Like ext- an extreme amount of you know, a lot of people died because of the policies. I mean, you know, because of issues with, with policies around the hospitals. Um, so you know, there's absolutely no accountability for this stuff. There won't be a Nuremberg trial for for COVID because there are no figureheads. You know. You can shoot Himmler. You can, you know, it's it's clear because he was obviously in charge of his division. He had his middle management. He had all the people uh, under him. Um, you can, you know, French Revolution style, kill the king because you know who he is and he's responsible for X or Y. So I think um, that's kind of the idea. It's like, okay, if you want to have any sort of functional organization, you need to have a chain of command and you need to know who the guy at the top is. Because, you know, when you, when you go out to have your little French Revolution to, to oust him, at least you know who he is. And, and that's it. And it sounds There'll really... There'll be a lot of people who would happily hang <laughs> Matt Hancock from the gallows <laughs> down the road from here, I promise you. Sorry, mate. No, but isn't that the problem with every type of government? Every type of government. Uh, Constantine is obviously from Russia. Uh, you, you know, you had the figurehead, the leader, but you also had the shadowy bureaucrats. Ceausescu is the same thing. My mum's from Venezuela, Maduro, I would happily kill, right? But the, he's also got his cronies, none of whom that I know. So isn't that the problem with all government, Alex? Yeah, in a way, in a way it is. I mean, I think it's, it's a problem of scale as well. Um, and it's a problem of, you know, the fact that a lot of the managerial system that we have now in government, it really is kind of necessary. Like, you know, mm. back in the day, mm. you didn't have like FDA, EPA type organizations, which, you know, People might, you know, not not think they're extremely effective, but you kind of need them now because the complexity of the whole system really is like in- incredible. Um, you know, you need to have consumer protection, you need to have all these types of things. Um, so it really is hard to see who's who's in charge of these things. Um, so yeah, I think I think there is an issue with that. But I mean, you know, with, with Ceausescu. We didn't shoot the guy, and then things did change. I mean, slowly and, and it's a bit slowly, unfair. Said, he had like a yeah. 99% approval rate. He did. Yeah, yeah. The day before you were set. Yeah, it tells you a lot about democracy, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not really a democracy. Oh, I just dropped my mic back. Yeah, well, it's not a democracy when you don't like it, is it? Yeah. <laughs> when you don't like the result. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, I think a lot of people on dissident right would say that, uh, you know, our democracy might be closer to that than you think, you know, to the to the figurehead type. So, so how, what's the solution then as I fiddle my microphone back in my pocket? Uh, the solution, I mean, there's, like I said, there's there's different proposals. I'm not sure that I've, you know, buy any of them in, in like wholesale. But the idea would be, um, you know, a lot of people are interested in kind of more decentralized ways of organizing society, like, you know, like charter cities and stuff, where it's kind of much easier to have kind of a CEO figure at the top, where it's, you know, small. You essentially um, buy into this community, and then you also have exit rights. So you don't necessarily have voice where you so you vote for the guy, but it's like, it's whatever, Constantin's charter city, he's the boss here. Um, I kind of like what he's doing with the place. And then I apply to get in, you know, Constantin says you're nice, okay, you can stay here. And if, you know, it hits the fan, you can have exit rights. How many wives am I allowed to have on this? Because that's really I, mean, I don't thing. know. It's your charter city, Constantin. You, you know what? You have this, to decide. You, I am now part of the dissident right because this sounds <laughs> great. Uh, I, strictly this one, by one the way. Strictly one, by the way. But this is kind of the American model. We saw this particularly during COVID. You know, a lot of our friends moved around yeah, the United States. I think it's a good model. Yeah. yeah. That, well, I, I am envious as hell. You, you do need a big country to do it and a federalist system. Or multiple countries. Or multiple countries, yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but that is, is actually what happened is people are sorting themselves based on their preferences about 
how they want to see the relationship between welfare and government and taxes and freedoms and opportunity and so on. And so you see those more liberty-minded people moving to places like Texas, like Florida. And there are plenty of people in California. I was just in California a few weeks ago. There are lots of people, you know, there's this narrative of like everyone is leaving LA. There are lots of people who are really happy living in LA and they're staying because they are comfortable with the trade-offs that they have. Of course. Uh, even they, they don't like the machete attacks, but as they told me, they have an app now. <laughs> yeah, of course. They yeah, have an app. So if machete you see, swerve. Yeah, yeah something like. Well, right. Is that what it's called? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hell of a name. We should set that up you, here, mate. You came up with that straight away. But th this is literally a conversation I, I had with somebody. I was like, they were asking me about. Oh, we see all these knife attacks in London. And I was like, oh yeah. I was just watching a video of some guy with a machete, and they were like, oh yeah, we have that here, but we have an app. We put it in, and then everyone knows to stay away from that area for a couple yeah. of hours. There's just a way in which these things kind of self segregate at one point. You right. know, it's like uh, you know, we're talking about white flight and stuff like this. You know, it's you know, you could call it kind of Brazilification, where you have the high rises next to the favelas, and there's a really, really functional wall between them, and then you know, people live relatively peacefully. There's some you know, issues between them. But yeah, that's kind of, that seems to be kind of the equilibrium that, that these, you know, these cities reach. You know, we have the kind of the donut cities model where, mm -hmm. you know, the inner city is just completely deserted and then the suburbs are flourishing and then you have kind of the commuter towns around and then you kind of, people swerve each other, swerving the machetes. So it's essentially thing. a future in which people start to build their communities according to their value systems. I think that's probably most likely. I think kind of see a lot of people doing that already in practice or aspiring to do it. Um, yeah, there's not really, you know, you kind of have to coordinate around something. I mean, obviously, I'd, I'd love that something to be like the, the nation state and stuff right. like that. But it might just be the case that, you know, the nation state was a social technology for a different era where, you know, nations were at war with each other and you kind of had kind of nations representing relatively homogenous ethnicities, not just like, you know, economic zones. Mm. Um, so now I think it might be that, okay, people will arrange themselves after maybe religion, maybe whatever, you know, their transhumanist AI mm -hmm. devotees, and if you want to, I don't know, whatever, have... Well, some set of values, you know, like, for example, we are here at NatCon, neither Francis or I are particularly conservative or nationalistic, really. We welcome you. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but this is my point exactly. This is my point exactly, which is that um, there, there is overlap in terms of values between different groups of people. I wrote a piece on my Substack after we came back from America about the old school liberals in America and conservatives trying to work out a way to work together on things that they actually agree on. Um, and that's kind of maybe what you're talking about. And I have to say, I, I joked about being part of the distant right, but I genuinely think that in Britain it's unlikely because we're too small a country. But in America, I totally see that happening. And, and everyone I talk to about their experience of doing that, they seem really happy. They seem really happy. You know, like this is Rogan was like, oh, move to Texas is great. And there are people in Florida who are delighted to be there. Like I said, there's people in New York. They love being in New York and it's the, it's the value system that works for them. Um, hmm. I'll be yeah. thinking about this. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it seems to be like a, yeah, a natural way of that, that things are kind of panning out. You know, uh, there's a lot of talk about kind of theoretical ideas in these spaces like, you know, the integral state. Everything's going to be Catholic. No, it's not. This is going to be very hard. To, uh, it's definitely a, a toothpaste that has left the tube a very long time ago, not putting that back in. So, yeah, you know, in theory, a lot of things are possible. I think in reality, something like this is more likely. 
I mean, you have this as well in, in Irania, you know, in, in South Africa, it's kind of a relatively famous thing where, you know, you have the Afrikaners having trouble with the surrounding issues politically. They essentially, you know, made their own city and there's very strict rules of what you can do. It's not like it's, you know, it's not walled off, but it's very clearly enforced what, what's allowed in there and whatnot. A lot of people have problems with this because it's, you know, it's very, it's, it's for the Dutch ethnics of the country and obviously it's, it's very monochromatic in Irania. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one way of, of solving their problems. So it's a highly functional society in a sea of absolute chaos and that's, you know, one way. It's like, a, you know, a very, uh, you know, and the anti-favela. <laughs> so, I mean, the problem is with that is it's, if it's done on racial lines, I'm kind of not down with it. I mean, they're down with it. It's a functional like, yeah, society. But yeah. So is apartheid, you know what I mean? I mean, it's not apartheid in the sense that, you know, this is literally just private property. It's like, it's like a reservation. It's like if the, you know, Indians in, in, uh, in, in America would say, okay, we just buy this plot of land and we live there, which is essentially what they're doing now, and, but it's just because it's endorsed by the state. Yeah. But here it's not endorsed by the state, it's just... These people know each other, they have private property, and they have so much of it that it's essentially a town. Mm. And, you know, if you're at least a little bit libertarian, you say, okay, that's, you know, pretty much fair enough. Well, <laughs> I, I have no problem... If they problem. can't come into your house, why should they come into their compound? Right. I have no problem with people, you know, wanting to, you know, have shared, shared ideals and all the rest of it. I'm deeply uncomfortable when it comes to the racial aspect of it, where people just go, right, we are X group of people... I, I understand that, obviously, but in that, you know, I think in a situation like this where mm -hmm. you're essentially at war, they, this is, you know, whatever you think about, there's a lot of violence happening in South Africa. Agreed. Um, the racial aspect for the people living in Irania is a good rule of thumb. You know, if it's if it's if your family's in danger and uh, if if that's kind of the thing, it's not that people of different ethnicities can't come in around. Like literally, there there is, but they have a police force, so no like deviation from you know law and order will be tolerated. You literally be, will be taken off the premises if you start you know mucking about. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you know it's you know there there's a limit to um, to tolerance sometimes. I I, would, I agree. There's a limit to tolerance when it comes to things like crime. The thing uh, where it loses me is if it's done on pure... If you were essentially creating a mini-ethnostate. I think they're creating a mini-ethnostate in practice and not necessarily because that's, you know, that's, that's the ethos of it. But it's like, you know, this is, it, is, it is for their community and they happen to all be Dutch, um, Dutch ethnics or, you know, from Afrikaners, essentially. Um, and I think, you know, they do this for a reason because not doing this has been, you know, quite fatal for a lot of them. So, you know, um, I'm all for freedom of association, uh, independent of what criterion you're basing it on. So w would you accept that in other nations? Yeah, why not? I mean, it's just, you know, you buy a plot of land in Venezuela and populate it with your very best friends, you know, and then you have so much money to buy a really big plot of land. Is it discriminatory that other people can't come trespass? It's not as if, if you're building a society and you're saying that this group of people aren't welcome because they have these type of immutable characteristics, I would say that there's a real problem with that. And you would outlaw it. I mean, what, what's the limit there? Is it uh, if there's a post office, then it's bad. But if there's none, then it's just like your backyard. You know, it's a... Uh, I really do think that people should have the freedom to, to do that. Obviously, you know, this is a question of taste and I think it's also a question of 
the conditions you happen to find yourself in um, and yeah and what you've had to tolerate up to that point and you know it's uh yeah it's it's you know it's a it's a tough place to live in um, and the problem is like the the Afrikaners really don't really have anywhere else to go it's not like they can go back to Holland it's like the only place that they can live and you know I've, I've had people on my show who um, are Afrikaners from South Africa they're working you know politically to you know to you know better their country uh, but the things that they described to me you know they a lot of people like in, in Cape Town and stuff have um, you know bars on their doors and there's they're you know they're literally called rape bars for a reason mm -hmm. things like that so they you know there's a lot of like profound ethnic conflict which happens along the white black divide um, and it's obviously you want to give people the benefit of the doubt and a lot of these guys that I've talked to also have a lot of black friends you know it's, it's impossible not to do in, in South Africa but you know there's um, a reticence around these things for a reason and you know I think it's uh, it, it can be reasonable in some in some ways. Uh, and Alex, uh, we we've talked about a whole variety of subjects. Uh, the the dissident right thing is is an interesting one because I see you kind of dipping into that, and as I watch what you talk about and stuff, and I've always just been curious to hear your your views on it. Uh, we've got a little bit of time left. What else are you thinking about? What else am I thinking about? Well, um, other than the babies. Other than the babies, yeah, I think everyone's babied out. Um, I, uh, I mean, I, the subject of my talk, this, uh, this uh, NatCon, um, was a little bit more, I guess, more, more spicy, but also it kind of flew under the radar because people don't really, yeah, <laughs> they shouldn't engage with it as much. Um, it's, uh, it's essentially something that ties into what we were discussing as well. It's, um, you know, it's around the concept of equality. You know, we, we have this uh, aspiration towards equality, and I think it's, it's kind of, it's, it's very virtuous, you know, we, we want that, we have kind of an instinct for fairness, we want people to, um, to engage with societies to their fullest and have as much opportunity as possible, but I feel we, we kind of constantly hit a snag, especially people who are um, of kind of more the classical liberal persuasion, and they really do want, you know, uh, you know, we talk a lot about equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. We classical liberals are for equality of opportunity, while they are for equity, equality of outcome. Um, and I feel like for people who are more conservative or want maybe to implement a more conservative uh, vision of society, this is a bit of a trap because if you say, okay, I'm for equality of opportunity and I want everyone to have equal opportunities, it's a very hard thing to prove politically in terms like, for example, if you implement a, a policy, okay, I want, um, you know, I want to say everyone in the society has maximum opportunity, we're doing the best we can so that everyone can, you know, equalize opportunities. And if after one, two, three, four generations that doesn't happen and you have pretty much the same distribution of people ending up at the top from different constituencies, I'm saying this is kind of a multi-ethnic, you know, men and women are, you know, theoretically have equality of opportunity. Um, and you have, you, you realize you have the same patterns, the same patterns, the same patterns. Um, what you get is an extremely powerful left because essentially what they're holding you to is equality of outcome. Because there's no test for equality of opportunity in the wild, but equality of outcome. If you don't get equality of outcome after, you know, the set timer, you're going to be uh, sus suspected of racism, sexism, homophobia, all this type of stuff. Well, it's even worse than that because on many of these criteria, we are actually, there is equality of outcome across these groups and it's still not enough. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, it's, uh, the, the ideology of this stuff kind of takes on a mind of its own after, yes. after a while. It's, you know, it's the, the um, equalization and kind of it, it, it becomes a bit of um, a religious impulse, you know. Not only need, 
do we need to equalize these people? We need to uplift them and um, and right historical injustice by penalizing the the oppressor class. You know, the people who are right. who are at the top. So we're kind of in that phase of it as well at this point. I feel like my speech was more in the sense that we need to be a little bit more realistic about what's actually possible as the right. We keep getting into the same, we stuck in the mud in the same equality of outcome discussion, uh, equality of opportunity discussion, and everyone's like, oh, we, um, you know, you also have to kind of realize that equality of opportunity, even if, even if you were to try your hardest at it, is pretty much impossible in practice as well, because people come to the table with, you know, extremely different backgrounds, you know, you know even putting aside genetics, I mean, the, the, the cultural aspects, the um, you know what did they what nutrition they have in, in childhood right. you know how much can you um, can you change that and yeah I think it's it's just a it's just a losing game and I feel like the right should be in the um, in the business of offering um, like functionality offering wide ranging opportunity but in the sense of okay like colorblindness you know well this is what I've always said is like I, I really reject any sort of messing around with quotas and any of that what we should have is no discrimination based on prejudice right you eliminate that and then it's sorry it's every man yeah. for himself at that it's point a t- it's a tough one because you know in, in law now you have um, essentially the, the the standard of disparate impact and you have that in the, in the UK as well under the Equality Act and in the US under the Civil Rights Act where it's pretty tough to prove that you were prejudiced or not. And the way people prove that there was prejudice is by seeing the, the outcomes. So if you don't have proportional representation in expositions, right. people would say, okay, this is, this is discriminatory. You know? yeah. Because it, it really is, in practice, pretty tough to say, okay, why did you take this candidate instead of this one? Well, you might say, oh, they had a better university education, but no, but the, they have more experience here. So it, you know, it, it kind of opens you up to litigation now and mm. pretty much everywhere in the West. So this is something that I think as a right needs to be, needs to be walked back because it's, it's, it's an impossible standard and it's like a cudgel. It's a rod for our own back. Mm. I do not recommend. And I know it's, it kind of goes, it's counterintuitive because people really want to have equality. It's instinctive. We want fairness. Um, but fairness needs to, uh, needs to play out in a different way. And you can see this, especially, I mean, I'm sorry to say, with crime as well. I mean, you have rampant crime in, in the U.S. especially and a little bit here in the U.K. as well. And there's a lot of issues with, um, with policing along racial lines. There's a lot of issues with not, you know, rocking the boat with different communities, which we've seen with the, with the grooming and scandal. Um, so, um, you know, from a right-wing perspective, what you need to have in regards to crime is um, pretty, you know, pretty strict and, and clear implementation of law and order, independent of how disparate the outcomes are. And I mean that the outcomes will be disparate because they, they've always been disparate, you know, and there's, there are all sorts of factors that flow into here as well, you know, cultural factors, crack epidemic, whatever, fatherlessness, which are factors as well, but they're also extremely hard to remedy and say, oh, we're just going to change the culture. It's like, we're just going to say, okay, we're, you, you have to treat your children like Koreans treat their children, and that's going to right things. That doesn't really happen. It's not how, you, um, how things happen. It's much more organic. So we need to, unfortunately, treat the symptoms to protect the citizens from this, because a lot of people forget that the cost of crime is not just uh, you know, the fact that the, the poor guy ends up in jail, because that's what we focus on. It's you know, the absolutely ruined lives of the communities that, that have to live with these people. And a lot of the, the, the sources of the most crime in the world are, is recidivism. Like people who are in and out of jail are not deterred by short jail sentences. You know, 
you know, I, I think like something like a three strikes law or something like that is, is genius because it really is a very small percentage of the population that does most of the crime and that also destabilizes most of the areas where crime happens because there is a kind of a, um, like a domino effect in crime as well. It's like if you are in the crime-ridden area and there's a lot of crime, well, you know, crime is the way you make your money, you know, gangs and things like that. So, yeah, I think that's, um, you know, this is, this is a fruitful and effective area of the right. I mean, you could see this with Giuliani's policies and, you know, after the crack epidemic, you know, things, things went well for a while because it was pretty strict and draconian and, you know, people didn't like it because it... Um, you know, it, it affected certain communities more than others. It's gonna, because that's just how this is how it is. There you go. Well, Alex, <laughs> uh, thank you for coming back on the show. We're going to ask you some questions from our local supporters in a second, but uh, everyone should uh, check out your subversive podcast, and uh, we'll see you on locals right now. What or who inspired you? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.